the gospel lesson. It comes to us this morning from the good news according to St. John, the 17th chapter. For context, this is the very final words, or frankly prayer, of Jesus at his last supper. So he's sitting with his disciples. They've been discussing. He's about to be crucified the following day. And he prays this final words of prayer. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one. Just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be, may be one, even as we are one. I in them, and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them, even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me, because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you. And these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known, in order that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. This is the gospel of our Lord. Amen. Please be seated. And in case you didn't get the memo through the e-news this week, uh, there is no children's church today just because of holiday weekend and the sort of last minute move over here. So as a mercy, what I did was I've got this little thing and I put a special thing and it's called the Brian Stedman uh, clock. And so as soon as I reach the part where Brian Stebbin would usually finish his sermon, it's going to start flashing at me that I have only 25 minutes left to go. <laughs> Not really. Um, so to transition from laughter, which is fine, it's all part of, uh, part of these rhetorical experiences, let me start with actually some more intense questions for our sermon. And why not, right? You give up time on this holiday weekend to come to church. Uh, why not take it seriously and get real for a minute? And so, for just a second, start with me. Start thinking with me of these couple questions. Think about all that you will dream of and work at and aspire to and desire this week and summer and year. And try to summarize that in your head for a second as, what are your life wishes? What are you trying to see happen for you? If you could have just one thing granted... What might it be? Keep it to yourself. It's rhetorical. But think. What are your life wishes? If you could have one thing, what might it be? You might be some, thinking of something for yourself that you want to experience, and it might be related to an idea also of legacy, that I want to do this in the world so that I can leave such and such behind for others. Now think about a related but different question. Imagine now that you have lived a long life. You've achieved, achieved some of those things that you just thought of, but maybe you haven't achieved many of them. Things are winding down in terms of your aspirations about the future, and you're thinking more about 
the life you've lived, who you are, what you're leaving behind, your legacy indeed. And you can have one last wish that you know will come true. One last wish for your life or more likely for others, right? At this point of your life, as you look backwards, you look at the people around you that you've loved and lived life with, and you have one last wish, what would it be? I'll tell you what mine is. If I was on my deathbed after a long life, I would have one last wish. It would look something like a double shack cheeseburger at a Radiohead and Kendrick Lamar concert on a private island in the Caribbean. Anyone else have the same wish? No, it could be a last wish for yourself, okay, but I bet most of you, because you're better human beings than I am, I bet as I was asking that question and having you think about it, your last wish was for others. You were thinking about something you could leave behind, something you wanted for those people you'd invested in, for those you love, something to do with your legacy. And interestingly enough, Jesus, who we understand to be the Son of God, that is God himself, as we see in this passage, this mysterious eternal member of this trinity, this social essence and being that is Father, Son, and Spirit that is one and yet plural, that this Jesus came and became one of us and took on all of our humanity, flesh, bone, blood, spirit, everything it means to be human. He took that upon himself. And then he lived a life, a life of love and sacrifice, pursuing the mission of God, the kingdom of God, the renewal and shaloming of all things in the cosmos. And then as he had these followers that he had invested three years in, he had spent his time with them more than with anyone else. He's in his last supper with them. He's got his final meal, bread and wine and the Passover feast. He's sitting with them. He's discussing them. He's preparing them for the fact that he is about to have a gruesome death. In fact, if you were to read just the next verse, he walks out and Judas shows up with all of the soldiers to take him to the cross and put him to death as a sacrifice for humanity, to taste death with and for us, and then three days later to be raised from the dead. Now, at this point, they don't know all of God's plans, but Jesus in front of them transitions from dialogue to, here is my final wish, Heavenly Father. In front of them, I want them to hear what is on my heart, what is my intent, what I want my legacy to be. All of my life that's been lived, I wanted to issue forth in this. And are you surprised by what he prayed? He prayed, I'll put it in really colloquial, pragmatic terms. It means a lot more than this. You can't reduce it to this, but we'll at least say it. He prayed that those who came to know him and follow him, which we understand to be Christians, those baptized followers of Jesus that belong to the global church, he prayed that they would be so united have such a united front, and not just a front, but and united in reality, that they would be so at one with one another that it would evidence the life of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in them, that they would be a unique community amongst all the communities of the earth, evidenced by their oneness, their unity, and such oneness and unity that the world cannot give, nor can it even understand, that it would look upon the church of Jesus Christ and be like, oh my God, literally. How can they do it? How can they be one when there is so much division in the world? This is Jesus' final wish. 
for himself, for God, for his creatures, for us. He says it over and over again. I want them to be in me the same way that I'm in you and that you're in me, and I want us to go and be in them. Last week we saw, he said, just ask, and we'll come and make our home inside of you, inside of your bodies. Our spirit will come in and we'll live inside of each one of you. We will make you one. We will attach you to the vine. You'll have the same life sap running in you that runs in me from the Father. The Spirit will give it, and you will be connected one to another. And he says, I want them to be perfectly one. This has the idea of pilgrimage again, of journey, which I've been talking about a lot this year, because the word perfect is this word telos, and it means the end, the goal. It doesn't mean that they would be perfectly one. It, it, it has more of the sense of as you're walking, you mature and you become more and more one. You're more and more like the destination. That's what perfection means, that you're getting to that oneness. And so he prays that we would have this and that that would be our glory. That would be our glory in the world and for one another. And this is the good news of the gospel, that we are once alienated, estranged, alone. At best, we find a little like-minded tribe of people who like the same little things we do and have the same picadillos and the same enemies, and we gather together, and then we find other people that we don't like and we feel superior to or protected from. And he says, that's not the way it is anymore. You're going to come through faith in Jesus into this new family that just is growing and growing and becoming more and more one even as it spreads You are going to come into this new community and live it out. And so in Jesus, we are no longer separated from one another. We can't be. We become brothers and sisters in the family of God, united together by Jesus' own spirit within us. And just for a second, reflect on that first question I asked you about your life wishes. Some of you are closer to the end of your many beautiful years. Some of you perhaps have many years that you're looking forward to by God's grace. For whoever you are, as you think about the time left and you think about that first question I asked you about your aspirations and what you want from life, this isn't to make you feel guilty. It's just to add something that I doubt very many of us thought of, which is this belief Jesus is telling us that it is fundamental to being human that we were made for community, right? And you know that word. I mean, you can see it. Calm means the same, unity, that we have the same union. You were made for community, and so you won't become fully yourself apart from investing in community. There's something about God's work of uniting people from across every barrier, from every tribe, every tongue, every nation, every race, every age, every class, every gender, that they would come together and find themselves in unity and then more and more living out unity And that if you commit to this kind of community, you are becoming more deeply human. You're becoming more the self you were created to be. If this is true, it really, really matters. It changes everything about how you live today. As an individual and as a member of community. Just think about the individual for a second. This should change the way you think about your aspirations and your work and the way that you live today. Many of us invest deeply, and I mean it with our time and our thoughts and our therapy and our finances, in things like our career, 
or understanding ourselves through counseling or our education or our financial sort of package. We invest deeply in these things. And then if you think about relationally, we are constantly looking to others for belonging and even for self-actualization, for identity, security, perhaps for love. And it's why relationships particularly can bless or wreck us. And it's because I know, I believe that we know intuitively that we were made for glory and that there is some actual glory that comes from belonging to community. Think about this. Maybe you've heard this before. You got a piece in art form? Way to go. You played college ball? Wow, that's so awesome. You got written up in the New Yorker? Nice, way to go. You made a beat and they put it on Beyonce's album? That's awesome. I bet you got paid. High five, right? To get into some kind of community, we realize, brings a kind of glory with it. And we think often that we don't have a social caste system anymore, but of course we do. In the West, in America, of course, if you boil it down, it's often individualism, and it's also meritocracy. It means that if you can bust down access to the right ladders, bust through the doors, find the right ladders, climb the right ones, work for the right people, get recognized by the right cultural authorities, then you will finally have glory. And of course, you've probably heard this problem. If you haven't heard it directly from Friedrich Nietzsche, who I'm going to quote in The Will to Power, you're aware of this because most of our very good, in many ways, justice movements are also, unfortunately, based on this idea that Nietzsche is about to say to you. He wrote this in Will to Power. My idea is that every specific body strives to become master, master over all space and to extend its force, its will to power, and to thrust back all that resists its extension. But it continually encounters similar efforts on the part of other bodies and ends by coming to an arrangement with those of them that are sufficiently related to it. Thus they then conspire together for power, and the process goes on and on. Do you hear what he's saying here? There is a zero-sum amount of power. Power is the only thing that we want in the world, and so we find little communities or bigger ones to dominate others. And I don't care if you trend towards the right in politics or you trend to the left. If you turn on the television on whichever one of those stations today, you are going to hear that sentiment. They're out to get you. They want the power. It's time to team up and take back what's ours or to protect what's ours or to put forth what's ours. It's this idea of will to power. But see, the Bible says something quite differently than Nietzsche. It says not only that we didn't want to share glory with God, that we didn't want to share glory with each other, and so we tend to fight over it, hoard it, murder for it, scheme for it, and reduce every other person to a competitor, a competitor or something to be consumed in order that we can get, keep, and increase our own glory. This is the part that sort of agrees with Nietzsche, that left to our own devices, we do think this, just as he did. And so there, we have to protect what little we can. And everyone else is out either to, to compete with us or to take what's ours and consume it. But see, Jesus says in this passage, his final prayer, that from the beginning it was not so. From the beginning was shalom, fullness, abundance, everything, everywhere was enough. Everything produced fruit. There were no thorns. Your life mattered. Nothing was meaningless. Relationships were give and take in the most beautiful way a sacrificial love and service of one another, a receiving without 
without reserve of other people's gifts and service, and all in the context of loving God and being loved by God and being in his presence. This is the Trinity, and this is the real root of all relationship and all community. To delight in God's provision, in his love, his abundance, and his presence. See, Andy Crouch, and this is at the front of your bulletin, but I'm going to read it to you so you don't have to flip there. He actually says this over and against Nietzsche's take on how the world works. He says, true being, we might think of God, we might think of ourselves at our deepest truth. True being seeks more being. It seeks relationship, connectedness, mutual dependence, the power to love, and in loving, create together. This is the true power that hums at the heart of the world, the power to conspire, dominate, and eventually become a single, isolated, lonely God is lifeless. And it's ultimately powerless. What we're saying here is that you cannot have your full glory become fully who you are on your own. That God created you for unity. And that it's as you prioritize and seek this unity that you actually become more fully human, precisely by becoming more connected to those around you with whom you may have had nothing or very little in common before this journey of faith. To become one is to become like God. Is that how you think about your spiritual life? I just wish I could grow spiritually. I wish I could have more victory. I wish I could experience God more. Do you stop and think that part of the way to that One of the chief ways to that is seeking reconciliation and deeper understanding and unity of mind and thinking and acting with other Christians. That we would invest our life in seeing the church become more and more one. One writer, Robert Wicks, puts it this way. First, others are there as a source of distraction to you. They're like tiny knots keeping us from focusing on gnats, Tiny gnats keeping us from focusing on God. Then others are there as a wonderful source of escape. They fill our time so we don't have to face our own nothingness or our own fears, that we are deluding ourselves and that God, in fact, doesn't really exist. Finally, they are there as Christ. No longer are they interfering or alien forces. At this point, we have the opportunity to be one with them in their joys and in their sorrows in the power of the Spirit. Jean-Paul Sartre said in his work, No Exit, that hell is other people. I know what he means by that. It happens sometimes, okay? Especially with the traffic around here. But the Bible and Jesus would say the exact opposite, that actually heaven, heaven is other people. Christ is other people. A father of the church, Irenaeus, said that the glory of God is a human being fully alive. And Jesus is saying to be fully alive is to seek the glory of another human being, in fact, other human beings together with you. And so individually, are you pursuing this? Is this one of your life wishes to spend your life learning what it means to pursue and work out unity in your relationships, in your community, in your church, in the world? And then to see corporately, churches begin to live this out more and more, which to me seems as much of a fantasy as one might stand up here and preach to you at this time, in this age, in this era. 
it seems like all we can see around us is more and more division. More and more things fraying at the seams and falling apart. More and more anger, recrimination. We see it as, even as the world becomes more and more of a global village, we're just more and more aware in our pockets of injustices and oppressions and systemic unfairnesses. We have as much diversity as ever with just as much division. And at least our class system is getting better, right? More and more people have the same amount of money. No, see, we look around and even as Sean started to pray, it's discouraging to see the amount of division in the world. And even at its best, living in a liberal democracy, which is just one of the many ways Christians have lived throughout the millennia, we talk a lot about tolerance in America, which I think is great. Here's a hand in favor of tolerance being way better than systemic injustice or animosity or open contempt. But also, at the very end of the day, do you as an individual want to be tolerated? Or do you want to be welcomed and embraced and loved? This is the unique contribution that Jesus gives to us through his spirit. His contribution to us is that he is at work in the spirit of love to change us, to help us tear down barriers in our own hearts and minds towards one another and in our relationships, and in our communities. To see us more and more becoming a community of love, united in oneness. And this is hard. Does your baptism, your creed, this shared meal, is it more important to you than any other thing that might connect you to people? Is it your glory? Do you see this as your glory and reward from God? I want to read one more quote just because I think it's so concrete. This woman's name is Heather King. She's a writer and NPR commentator and a recovering alcoholic. She has not so long ago come to faith in Christ, and she reflected on her initial experience going to a church just like this on a Sunday morning. She says, my first impulse was to think, oh my God, I don't want to worship with these nutcases. And she's still writing, nothing shatters our egos like worshiping with people we did not handpick. The humiliation of discovering that we are thrown in with extremely unpromising people. People who are broken, misguided, wishy-washy, out for themselves. People who are us. But we don't come to church to be with people who are like us in the way we want them to be. We come because we have staked our souls on the fact that Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. And the church is the best place, the only place to be while we all struggle to figure out what that means. We come because we'd be hard-pressed to say which is the bigger of the two scandals of God, that he loves us or that he also loves everyone else. I just want to give you a brief picture before we close of what that might mean for us, what it, we've tried to make it mean and what it might mean going forward. Does it mean that our congregation and its corporate life is the main thing as people from lots of different backgrounds come together, that our congregation would reflect and transcend the diversities in our neighborhoods, that we would work and continue to work in concert with other churches and organizations across tradition and racial backgrounds and barriers and all these other divisions that exist even within the larger church. 
that we would work, pray, play, aspire, and hope and belong together, and that it would be concrete, not just spiritual, that we would share the work, share our money, share our glory, share our praise, share our suffering, share our mission. To believe that as we transcend political divisions and divisions of class and race and gender and every other sort of division that the world can think up, that as we find ways to perhaps sometimes disagree and to even argue, to still keep the main thing the main thing and to remain in unity and love with one another, to count the cost and say this is what it means. Jesus prayed that we would be one and that as we live out and discover unity, a bigger room in our hearts with less walls to people, a bigger room in our congregation and less walls to people, that as that happens, we begin to look uniquely different from the communities of the world that aren't just around power and blood and money and wealth. Instead, something different that people can't figure out. They walk by and they say, look at all those different kinds of people, old, young, black, white, Asian. Look at all these different, and why are they together? And here they are week after week, and look at them celebrate. What power could be bringing them together? Jesus said, this is literally, this is what it means to be missional. His one goal that he states For all the world to know that he is the incarnation of love, that he is the embodiment, that he is God's fullness of love expressed in the world. If you want Jesus, if you want people to come to know Jesus and to come to know faith and to be saved, that the best way they can do that is by noticing our unity in Christ. Go back and read it again later. This is how they will know. When they see a beautiful, loving, sacrificial, serving, united multiracial church in the center of Brooklyn. Ta-Nehisi Coates, who many of you will know, a lovely and challenging, terrifying writer on racism in America, in his book, Between the World and Me, he wrote this toward the end of the book. He's recounting a conversation with Dr. Mabel Jones, whose son was killed by a police officer who mistook him for another African-American male. Coates is reflecting as he listens to Dr. Jones talk of what the church means to her in the midst of her suffering and injustice. And here's what he wrote. I close with this. Tanahisi says, I thought of my own distance from an institution, that is the church, that has so often been the only support of our people. I often wonder if in that distance I've missed something, some notions of cosmic hope, some wisdom beyond my mean physical perception of the world, something beyond the body that I might have transmitted to you. I wondered that because something beyond anything I have ever understood drove Mabel Jones to an exceptional life. Or as Jesus said, the glory that you have given me I have given to them that they may be one even as we are one. I and them and you and me that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. May God, by his grace, give us the power to become one, just like God. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.